Well, please be seated. Good to see you all tonight. And uh, as Mike mentioned earlier, we are restarting foundations just with a little uh, slight different focus this autumn, uh, looking at what it means for God to be on the move among us as a church. We're going to be looking at different uh, ways of, uh, that fleshes itself out in the New Testament. But tonight we're going to be looking especially about what it moves what it means for God to be on the move for his glory. And uh, I want to start tonight by asking you a question of, how do you see the church? How do you see the church? We had a little slot this morning where Mike and I interacted on the stage here about um, how different people perhaps when we think of church or the condition or spiritual state of the world around us, whether that be immediately around us or the world at large, it can be somewhat discouraging, appear a bit dire, um, perhaps make you feel like you're on the losing side of things. Um, You may be here of things in the media with particular ministries or particular uh, ministry leaders that make you think, what in the world is going on? And make you feel like perhaps um, there's not much of a bright future Ahead, I think our own personal experiences, or maybe for some of us in the room, our lack of any experience contribute to what we think of when we hear the word church. But my hope and prayer is that as we move our way, no pun intended, <laughs> through, through this series, um, that our eyes are going to be lifted, our heart is hopefully going to be expanded and have a different sense of the horizon about what it means to be church. In these conversations, We're going to explore something right in the name that is indispensable to what it means, the concept of church, but can frequently uh, fall into the background and be overlooked. And that is that idea of movement. We're going to look at a a handful of passages uh, to start ourselves off here that should be helpful in seeing this element that when we think of church, when we think of God's kingdom work in this world, we should be thinking of not something that's stagnant, but something that's vibrant and on the move. Um, These verses won't be on the screen. I apologize. I got these together later on, so I wasn't able to put these up on the screen. But if you need a Bible, we do have Bibles, but I encourage you to uh, open uh, to Matthew chapter 13. And we're just going to walk actually a couple of chapters in in Matthew. So Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. And just look at some verses that help us see this concept of movement, just to start setting the scene for this. So the first is the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. If you need a Bible, just put your hand up. We can get those to you. I don't know what the page is on the church Bible tonight. I apologize for that. But Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 13 give you a moment to find it. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to start reading at verse 31. It says that he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through 
the dough. Now, at first reading, you may not capture this idea of movement, but it's there. You have the sense of a growing presence through the seed that starts small and grows into a large plant, into like a tree. You have the spreading of influence as the yeast works its way through an entire batch of flour, incorporating into the whole lump of dough. So you see it there. But if you turn just a few pages over, you see it in another way. In chapter 16, just flip a few pages in Matthew, chapter 16, verse 13. We see it in Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. So in verse 13 of chapter 16, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who uh, do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus here is asserting that his church will be built up. It's moving. (laughs) It's growing. It will be built up in an unstoppable manner, even when confronted and challenged by hostile forces. He says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So you see it in some of his parables. You see it in this direct statement he is making to Uh, to Peter, which we're going to come back to in just a little bit, but you also see it in what's called the commissioning of the 12 apostles to go out. When Jesus has, has died, he's resurrected, all things we sang about in that last song when we sang praise to his name, and he sends them out. And at the end of Matthew, and in the beginning of the book of Acts, we see this. So Matthew chapter 28, if you want to turn there, and uh, we'll be looking at Verses 19 and 20. These may be very familiar passages to you, but I want you to think about them. And if they're not, that's okay. Uh, But I want you to think about them in terms of this idea of movement. Because it is a dynamic of life in the early church, the beginnings of Christianity in the world, that it was not simply uh, contained, but it expanded. It moved. So actually starting at verse 18, I'm sorry, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." Put differently, in Acts chapter 1, these, there's several of these commissioning passages throughout the New Testament. Matthew's gospel is one of them. In the beginning of Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Jesus says this to his disciples before he ascends back into heaven. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so... 
The 12 are sent out in the authority of Jesus on a mission of multiplication to reproduce followers of him with a sphere of operations that will spread from their little corner of the Middle East throughout the world, us being in this room here tonight as, as evidence of that. Not only is there this growing geographical sphere, but in simply saying, if you want to put it in human terms, there is movement just in individuals' lives of moving them to obey everything that I've commanded you. There's always this idea of movement, the concept of positive movement in relation to the kingdom of God and the church is a thread that runs through all these passages and others in the New Testament. Last year, we did a Bible overview in the autumn. Some of you were here for that. And uh, we were introduced to God's intention to bless the nations of the world through a promise made to one man, Abram, later known as Abraham. And in Genesis 12, again, to see that this idea of movement is not just something that began in the New Testament, but in its very uh, beginnings, and the promise made to Abraham was there. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so inherent in this promise, even made to Abraham centuries earlier, is an expectation that things will progress outward from him and his immediate family to all nations of the world. And if you were in our Bible over, you remember things move from promise to fulfillment, promise to fulfillment as the Old Testament moves from the beginning into the New Testament. And centuries later, God's promised plan to bless the nations moved forward in promising another man, King David, that the Lord would raise up one of his descendants who would build a house, it says, for the Lord's name. We're talking about the Lord's name this morning. We're talking about his reputation. We're talking about his glory. And it says this in that passage, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest, and you rest your, with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David wanted to build a temple for the Lord and the Lord said, no, one of your offspring, I'm actually going to establish a house for you, David. And one of your offspring will build a house for my name. But there is a promise and fulfillment in this that goes even further because there was an immediate and partial fulfillment in Solomon who did build a physical house for the Lord's name, a temple, physical temple. But the ultimate development would come with the arrival of a greater son of David, Jesus the Messiah. And so you see Jesus' bold assertion that I will build my church, a house, was, was far greater than just a, it didn't emerge in a vacuum. When we think of the church, many of you are thinking, if you know church history, it didn't even exist yet. What's he talking about? 
God has always had his called out ones. <laughs> the assembly of Israel, the, the house that he would build for his name. And so when Jesus is saying this, this movement, it's something that was there from the beginning that we can trace all throughout the pages of the Old Testament through to the church, through Jesus and the church until he returns. And hopefully beginning this evening, this idea of Jesus building his church as a progression, the seed of which started with Abraham, is moving forward in fulfillment today and will continue until Jesus' return. That that starts to get into our thinking. So over the next several weeks, we're going to explore some of these dynamics of movement. Maybe, just maybe, when you hear the word church, the last thing that came to your mind was something that's dynamic and moving. Hopefully you do. But a lot of our experiences of church may make us think, mm, not so much. Sometimes it's a difficult place for things to move. And before we can look at what that looks like, because I think if we look at the pages of the New Testament with an eye to see it, our, our thinking will be expanded in ways that are like, wow, this is really helpful. And so hopefully this is doctrinal in some nature, but also inspirational and motivational in others. But before we look at what those dynamics are and how they can be informative to us, I think there's a more fundamental question of asking ourselves, where is this all going? Meaning, if things are moving, toward what end are they progressing? Because how we answer that question is so important because it's the foundation upon which all this sense of movement builds and rests. And that foundation needs to be sufficient. It needs to be able to, to, to hold up what builds off of that. And so tonight, our first song that we sang, when we sang, kept singing that refrain, to the praise of his glory, that's all from a passage in the book of Ephesians, um, a book in the New Testament that we're going to focus the majority of our attention on tonight, written by the Apostle Paul, where those statements to the praise of his glory keep coming up. Now, these verses should be on the screen. If you're turning in your scripture uh, in the Bible, that's fine in, in Ephesians chapter 1. But I want to read these verses to you um, from chapter 1, verse 3, uh, going through to about verse 14. And I want you just to capture not only... What, God, what Paul is saying about what God is doing, but why? What's the intended end? So he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, as I read through that, even if you couldn't track with everything that he was saying that we have in Christ, that he's saying we should praise him for, hopefully you notice that along the way he kept saying something. Oh, by the way, this is to the praise of his glory. Bum, 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 bum. To the praise of his glory. Dun, 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 dun. And then he concludes it again, to the praise of his glory. He repeats it three times. As one writer has put it, God emphasizing that in this way means his supreme plan. In his supreme plan, he chose to use the church as his chief instrument whereby his glory is manifested in the world today. Think about that. When I asked you the question at the beginning, when you think of the word church, what do you think of? I'm not sure if any of us or not many of us in the room probably didn't think when I think the word church, I think of the chief means by which God chooses to glorify himself in the world today. But it is. Look around the room. You're it. So am I. Wow. <laughs> right? God's supreme plan is to move in and through the church. People like you and me. In every culture. Every context, from Western Europe to East Asia, from humble hamlets to megacities, always with the ultimate aim of the glory of his name among the nations. That's the church. The movement of God through the church, spreading, expanding, growing, multiplying is an essential means of God's name being made known to the world. In his book, um, Let the Nations Be Glad, great book on missions written by John Piper in the States, he harnesses this concept with a potent reminder of what truly lies at the core of the existence and activity of the church for us. Missions, he says, in terms of the gospel going to the world, is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of people in the greatness of God. So as we start thinking about movement, I want us to keep in mind that the church is God's chosen platform. It's his vehicle through which his power, his grace, his mercy and wisdom are made manifest as more and more people find forgiveness in life under his rule and reign to the praise of his glory. And again, this thread can be traced if we continue to walk our way through the verses of Ephesians. Now, I'm going to read some verses that were influential in me coming to faith, in me understanding the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2. We're just kind of walking our way through these, a bit of a survey. 
And it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace or incomparable, however you want to pronounce that, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship, is another way to translate that, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, God moves in us and through us, bringing those who are dead to life in Jesus as a gift, demonstrating Revealing his glory, the incomparable riches of his grace. In other words, to reveal who he is, where his handiwork. I have, um, I like the car- cartoon strip, The Far Side. Anybody Far Side fans in the room? Hopefully you'll like this one. Put this up on the screen. I love this. You may not be able to read it, but take this handkerchief back to the lab, Stevens. Want some answers on which monster did this? Godzilla, Gargantua, who? I don't know if you can see K, K on the giant handkerchief there you know but when we say this is so-and-so's handiwork usually it's with a negative isn't it you know there's a crime scene this looks like this so-and-so's handiwork but the idea is someone's work being associated with them the word handiwork here or workmanship is also in some context used of um, a masterpiece a piece that displays the skill and um, the the skill of 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 an artist And in a sense, when you look at that piece, when you look at Michelangelo's David or you look at the Mona Lisa, you you think not only of the work in front of you, but the greatness of the artist behind it. And so he's saying in terms of the church, when he says there's good works he's prepared in advance to do, where his workmanship, that it's a revelation of his greatness through our changed lives. As transformation comes, as we who are dead and are brought to life, and people look at us and say, Steve's not the person he used to be. Hopefully, I'm progressing in that way. Hopefully, there's movement in my life in that way. Gospel transformation. And what does it point to? Not to my skill, not, but it points us as we do it collectively to him. Think about that as you leave here. I want you to go this thinking, I'm a masterpiece. You are. Your life can be of his glory. So even when not spoken of explicitly in Ephesians, as I'm trying to point out to you here, the thought of his glory being revealed or made manifest is everywhere present. It's moving. We are his handiwork, drawing attention to the greatness of the master and what he produces in us and through us. And he doesn't just do this in the natural world, not just for our neighbors around us, but what I'm trying to do in in getting us down to the, the why of church and movement first is to perhaps lift our perspective, our expectation, our sense of who we are. It is not just even to the watching eyes around us, but there's a cosmic supernatural element to this all that Paul traces it to in chapter 3 look at verse 10 when he's talking about God's work through the church he's talking about how he's bringing Jew and Gentile together into this mystery that was revealed the church new people of God he says his intent that was was that now through the church 
the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now just let that soak in. Not only in the natural world does the church exist to point to the greatness of God, but also in the supernatural to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, to, to angelic beings, to demonic beings. It is then this stream of thought then that when Paul thinks of the church and he prays for the church, that he culminates all of this with this statement of truth and aspiration that we so often use to close a service. <laughs> and it's great to do so in that way, but think of it in terms of the movement of God, the purposes of God through his church. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, it's only a pursuit of God's glory that will fuel and sustain a multi-generational movement through which God's name is honored. And when we think about who we are, let me just bring it down to us, as King's Church, this is the lens through which we ought to look. The mirror that reveals what we are called to be and what we're called to aspire to. It's that foundational starting point from which all else rises. As I said, that, that foundation and the removal of which contributes to all activity and movement faltering, stalling. So Paul just continues in chapter 4 with the impact this should have on the way we approach life and ministries. We think about King's Church. He said to them in Ephesus, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. See, chapters 1 through 3, he's kind of telling the Ephesians, this is who you really are. I mean, if we started with the rhetorical question to them, if he started with them, hey, Ephesians, when you think of church, what do you think of? Let me tell you who you really are. In my house, when I acted up, you know what my father used to always say? Who do you think you are? I got that from time to time. Who do you think you are? But in this sense, who do we really think we are? When we look in the mirror of God's word. See, this immense sense of call that the church has is the, the focus of God moving in the world right now for his glory lays the groundwork for Paul to challenge the Ephesians and us then about the way they operated and encourage them to be motivated and shaped by a higher purpose as individuals and collectively. So how does embracing this call to function as the primary means by which the greatness and glory of God is revealed, how does it begin to challenge the way we operate individually, families, as a church? How will it shape us? Well, I just want to finish our time with, I'm not going to go into tremendous detail because I think these things have a way of working their way out in the life of things that we do. But I think one way to think of it is expectation. Do you expect God to move? If God's intention is to continue 
to move in us and through us, then we should expect that he will. <laughs> and that in doing so, things will progress. Things will develop. That we will not look the same as time goes by. And as somebody who's still relatively new to this place, I got to tell you, this isn't the same place even that it was four years ago when I first stepped foot into this building. You know that. Some of you were here then. Some of you, you weren't here then. Guess what? You're part of the newness. God's moving. God's doing new things. Expectation. A brief history of the church would bear that out that God, over time, we look back and see how he has moved, how he's changed things, how he's developed things. God brings in new life, new people. He leads in new directions. He opens up new opportunities, presents new challenges. Our location has changed. Our name has changed. All kinds of things. But our fundamental reason for existence has remained the same throughout. His glory. So in that, could I suggest also in terms of expectation that we need always in our personal lives and collectively to guard our hearts against something that's dangerous. And that's memorializing past movements of God for his glory. Enshrining the status quo. Looking back and, and saying the best is behind us when the best is yet to come. See, when we embrace what he's made us to be, we need to always ask in faith, what's next? What will the next movement of God in us and through us look like? How will it reveal his glory in fresh and exciting ways? What will the, the victories that we celebrate? Who will be the guys who show up at October that you've been praying for? As we do things together as a church for Christmas, what will be the stories of, of victory that we see? We see him moving. We see him at work. We should have an expectation and a sense of anticipation of God working in us and through us. And so when we think of movement, when we think of God being on the move, one way in which for us to embrace as we've seen it develop throughout the New, Te New Testament pages and Ephesians particularly is ask ourselves honestly, what's our sense of expectation? But also orientation, meaning where are we faced? Movement always, always has several elements to it, but one of them has to be outward. Movement always has an outward element beyond what exists to what God will bring into being for his glory. I love the fact that... Um, this church, in the few years I've been here, it's become clear to me, wants to be a people through whom God receives glory. I've seen that in so many different ways. People faithfully volunteering, the, the eldership, different things. We're seated in a building tonight that exists because God moved through faithful people who desired that, who desired more than anything for him to be glorified in this community. And you see it week in, week out, come into the well, see the building in, 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 you know, in action, be here on a Sunday. And sometimes I think back what that was like. You know, we had the 25-year celebration and, and all that, and which was wonderful. And I think, what must it have been like for them? 
he shook up their status quo big time, didn't he? That generation. Some of you in this room. And in so doing, how many stories have been shared about how he moved in an amazing way as a result? So what is next? I think that's just, when you think of on the move, you have to ask yourself that question. What's your expectation? What's your orientation? What's next? If he's going to move in us and through us for his glory, let me just put it, for you. Take it down individually because we're, we're a collective of individuals. What will it mean for you? What will it mean? What will it look like? If we think in terms of movement, multiplication, expansion, growth, then it will likely mean that some aspect of our orientation needs to be outward facing. To consider how he will use us in new ways. To invite new people in an ever-growing relationship with King Jesus for his glory. So in that light, let me restate the question I posed earlier. Rhetorically, you don't have to answer it. How do you view the church? I hope it's changed a little. And I want to give you an object lesson that hopefully you take with you. This morning I made a, a, a kind of a toss-away statement that um, you know, sometimes we can approach it as if pudding's already been served and there's nothing left to look forward to. That was a story that I've used over the years because I had a friend of mine who was um, talking about this, I think it was a care home, you know, and they always would stay in that care home as they, people ate their food and everything. They would always say toward the end of the meal, Hold on to your spoons, because the best is still yet to come. Pudding. Pudding is still yet, still yet to come. And I want to tell you, in light of what we see and what we've talked a bit about this morning, that the gospel is still the gospel, that the Spirit of God still moves through his people, through the gospel, that there's still reason to hold up the spoon and say, the best is yet to come that God wants to do new things among us. So every week, every, every day this week, that you pick up a spoon, I want you to be reminded of that. And say, God, the best is yet to come. I believe you're on the move in me and around me. Help me to follow you with whatever that means, because you're worth it. It's for your glory. You're worth it. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you tonight and we confess, Lord, that frequently we can, well, we can get down. We can feel distracted and discouraged. Lord, and in so doing, lose sight of why we even exist. Lord, we can just get our sense of um, our bearings off so horribly. But Lord, I pray tonight for each of us, individually, that we would know this night that no matter what our journey has been in this life, that through Jesus Christ, our lives individually and collectively, especially together, can be to the praise of your glory. That as you move in us and through us, you can be uh, at work in us in such a way that your power and your mercy and your goodness are at work in us for the world to see. Lord, we do confess and believe that
your gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. That the Holy Spirit still indwells your people, this church. And as we look at the weeks ahead about what it means to be in step with you, on the move with you for your glory through this place, in this community and beyond. God, give us eyes to see and hearts that long to see you and to see your glory made manifest among us. And for that to go out to new places and new people, that there would be new victories and new celebrations and new steps of faith that we have to take together because you call us to be on the move with you. God, give us a heart that believes that the best is not behind us, but the best is yet to come because you are on the move for your glory through our lives and through this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.